0: Hello, you're listening to A Little Bit of Largham, a podcast exploring a more connected and human approach to climate conversations. A space for questioning, learning and discovering the many ways a sense of balance can come to be. It's been a while since the last podcast episode has been released and I've actually been really missing it and I'm really excited to be getting back into it after some time away. I thought maybe I should give a little bit of an update of the things that I've been getting up to whilst I've been away from podcasting. I'll try to keep it fairly brief though and not ramble too much. From more of an activist perspective, whilst things have been opening up a little bit more, in Cardiff I've been getting involved in some more in-person community projects again. It's been a bit challenging when I've been very much between Cardiff and London with work-related reasons, But it's been really nice to find ways to engage when and where I can and it's really exciting to see all the things that are coming up through these ahead of the Great Big Green Week and also in the lead up to COP26. My moods have definitely been fluctuating and I'm trying to cling on to Radical Hope, trying to stay away from climate doom. I saw a post recently that was outlining that sitting in climate doom can be no better than climate denial. The world we live in has been built from ideas that people imagined, so if we can't bring ourselves to imagine a more just and sustainable future, then we really limit what is possible. In the state of all of the horrific injustices happening in the world, this can lead into a state of paralysis, not knowing what to do moving forwards, but we have to recognise that finding ways to cling on to radical hope and take actions forwards is really, really crucial. Something I will encourage is that you find your community and support networks because this really does make a huge difference on what feels possible. The mainstream climate narrative can be a really damaging one, either through making individuals feel solely responsible or focusing merely on carbon emissions and not actually focusing on the root causes of the climate crisis and the historical responsibilities that countries have in relation to colonialism and the impacts of capitalism. And this is something that I think we really need to try and bridge in climate conversations, especially with people not yet engaging in the movement. This lens of climate justice is really an essential one if we're actually to build a more just and sustainable future. So I've mentioned a few times on this podcast about myself being a freelance dance artist predominantly, and at times I've really struggled to see how I can intertwine this with my activism. And I'm actually really grateful that some exciting projects and possibilities have been arising allowing me to combine these things and this feels really, really important to me. I've not wanted to fall into the contemporary dance stereotype of when you take climate activism into your dance it tends to become very blame focused Uh, and something for me that seems really important is actually connecting with people's empathy um, and using the power of the arts to evoke this and the sense of community And sort of bridge the gaps between the science and people, which I think arts has an incredible ability to do through the humanity of it. And I didn't really know how this factored into my dance practice. And it's a continuous journey, but some recent experiences have really given me hope in how the arts and my dance practice can actually lead to really, really insightful and productive discussions to move conversations forwards with the community regarding climate action. There's also the possibility of an upcoming project engaging the community in climate conversation with a focus on arts installations and movement practices as a part of this collective action. And also remembering that experiencing joy is an important aspect of bringing communities together. And once we evoke that connection of community and the empathy, then it's easier for action to take place because there's a community of care. And I think one of the most exciting things that has been happening that I'd really love to share a little bit about with you has been being part of the Resilience Circle project, which I found so transformative. This project involved attending a residency back in July, which I don't really have the words to explain how magical of an experience this was. I met so many inspiring and deeply warm-hearted and wonderful human beings engaging in climate action around the UK. The aims of this residency was to support us in developing skills to co-facilitate resilient circles in our own communities. And these circles aimed to empower young people engaging in activist spaces to build resilience and emotional awareness, as well as a space to connect with like-minded people in a supportive community. The focus is on collective well-being and exploring ways of managing eco-anxiety and preventing burnout which is so prevalent in these spaces. The process very much involved deconstructing a lot of damaging narratives which we often internalise and it's the hope that we can then foster more compassionate and sustainable movements. Developing collective care in our communities and building resilience is needed now more than ever and I really do feel strongly about the importance of this project and what it hopes to share. The residency was such a uniquely powerful experience and perhaps at some point I will share more about it, but for now I still have so many reflections and realisations that were evoked from this experience and I'm really excited to be co-facilitating a circle in Cardiff with Aileen who... I actually met through online activism and weekly facilitated climate conversations that I organised and started earlier this year. So now to be coordinating this project with her feels really special. There's so much that I'd love to share with you about the experiences of the Resilience Circle Project and also about my upcoming projects, but I'm aware that I've been word vomiting for quite a while already now, and I'm really excited to introduce the wonderful human being that I will be chatting with on this podcast today. So, if you do have any questions about the Resilience Circle project or any of the projects I've mentioned so far, or if you have any reflections from any previous episodes, you're always welcome to email me on a little bit of at gmail.com or you can just drop me a message on Instagram at a little bit of So, in today's episode, I had a wonderful conversation with Gigi, an Indigenous earth defender and self proclaimed eco punk and eco goth and there's more to come on that in our chat. She also runs the online platform Quinta de Maíz, an educational platform focusing on environmental education in bite-sized pieces, fostering collective unlearning and relearning with her community. In this conversation we delve into subjects of identity, the power embedded in the language we use, the ways in which the environmental movement needs to become a more inclusive space, and the current prominent narratives of environmentalism that are in many ways damaging and exclusive. Gigi shares her personal experiences of feeling for a long time that she did environmentalism quote-unquote backwards, and how she's now come to honour the way that she learned about environmentalism. We also discuss connections with nature, the importance of compassion and calling in, as well as her thoughts and approaches to managing eco-grief and eco-anxiety. Gigi also shares her beautiful intentions that she set at the beginning of this year and how they've guided and shaped her decisions moving forwards. And of course, what a little bit of Lagum means to her. I really hope that you enjoy this conversation. Well, I'm really looking forward to having this chat with you. I think it's going to be so nice to learn more about you and everything that you're doing, Mm -hmm. because I think it's incredible. But would you be happy to start just with a little introduction to who you are and a little bit about what you do? Would be great.
1: Yes, of course. So my name is Gigi, and I'm the creator of Hinted del Maíz, an Instagram page where I focus on environmental education in bite-sized pieces. The goal is to share my own personal uh, journey into green living, into sustainability, as well as to center people who have been historically shunned from environmental discourse. So that would be um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, as well as other marginalized identities and communities. My digital platform is dedicated to everyone that I've just mentioned right now, and any allies and accomplices that would like to also join and uplift our our missions our voices um what have you and yeah the goal is just to inspire others to also explore their own relationship to the environment in a way that is mindful and uh, decolonial really so i think that's a little bit about the page that i run Um, a little bit more about myself is I am, I consider myself an indigenous environmentalist. My family is from a small village in the region of La Misteca in Oaxaca, Mexico. So that is um, many, many, many miles away from where I currently live. I am tuning in from Los Angeles, better known as Tongva territory. And yes, I consider myself an environmentalist, an eco puns, an eco goth, an artist, And, uh, yeah, um, I don't know. I I can't think of anything else better.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think you summarized yourself in a wonderful way there. And I remember when I first came across your platform, you share such incredible resources and in a way that's so compassionate and really welcoming. And I just, that's something that really stood out to me in in your work, as well as the incredible educational resources.
1: Yes. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for that. And I I guess I almost forgot, kind of, not really, I did mention it. Um, I am Mista Kawahakine, so my peoples are from the Mista community. Just to add
0: that in, just to clarify. Awesome. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And you kind of led perfectly on into my next question around how you identify as an Indigenous earth defender and a self-proclaimed eco-goth or eco-punk. So I'd really be interested to learn more about what these identities mean to you and whether you've always embraced those aspects of your identity.
1: Yeah, definitely. I recently came to... The term Indigenous Earth Defender, it was a term that I constantly heard. It's very popular to use when we're referring to Indigenous environmentalists um, south of the US border. So, you know, Mexico, Central America, South America, most of Latin America. And in Spanish, it could also be translated as Defensora de la Tierra. So that's exactly as yes, Earth Defender. And that title really calls it to me because sometimes when i am in certain spaces or sometimes when it's when other people view me they tend to call me an activist which there is no problem with that but i wanted something that would call to the specific line of interest and work that i do and so environmentalist came up um, right away it came to my mind um but something about it still felt like it was missing that it didn't really hone in on the grassroots work that I want to focus on have focused on until I kind of had a conversation with a friend and they had asked me who they are also indigenous and also from Oaxaca they asked me why why am I not um, calling myself an indigenous earth defender if that's who I am and why do not why do I not show up as that person when I am that person And they kind of just really got me thinking and helped me interrogate, like, why wasn't, why didn't I feel like I can also claim that term? And so, yeah, after discussions with friends and family, I think I was like, okay, like, I think it's time for me to call myself an Indigenous Earth Defender. And I feel like it really calls to my specific, like I, when I hear that term, I know who I serve. I know who I care about. I know what like my work is, and it's very in close relation to the planet, the environment, the earth. So yeah, that's how that name um, kind of came about. As regards to being an eco punks or an eco god, I have always been an alternative person. I grew up listening to so many genres. I listened to like punk, and when back in middle school. Um, of course, it was more post-punk or emo music. Then I quickly moved into metal. So I have been listening to a lot of different things, psychobilly, you name it, you know. But punk really came to kind of just be something that kind of stayed and formed my identity, not as just within my subculture, but also as an everyday thing. It became um, my lifestyle. And that was always something that, I feel like founded me, right? So, and in many ways, it's also true for like the goth movement, right? It's kind of hard to not go into all of the history, but, you know, goth would not exist without um, the essence of punk, um, punk music. Um, goth came right after punk. So I feel very <laughs> similar to that. You know, I was a punk first before I ever, you know, dived into goth. Um, literature or goth music or what have you. So yeah, the eco part of both of those identities um, kind of came when I started thinking about the way that I had always lived my life as a punk. You know, I had a lot of friends who, you know, would buy patches from the store, which it's not a problem. But for me, I just didn't have that type of money. And I didn't have that type of like Like, no one could take me to these stores. Um, And I was much too young to go by myself at that time. So what did I do? I literally just used scrap material for pants that no longer fit me. um, And I began to just paint my own patches and put them onto my clothing. And if that's not the most DIY, punk, sustainable thing that I ever had done, I kind of started thinking about it. I was like, wait, like, I didn't just do or practice uh, punk because of, you know, in the name of sustainability is because I literally didn't have the resources for it. And I think that's also something very similar within a lot of our BIPOC communities where we've been practicing or have uh, sustainable values within our cultures, but we don't necessarily uh, claim them to be, you know, in the name of sustainability. And I think, you know, that there's a lot to unpack there. and. I believe that, you know, doing things in the name of sustainability is a privilege at times, you know. So that's kind of a little bit of how I kind of came into really honing into eco-punk and eco-goth. And really, my goal is to, you know, uh, live my lifestyle and practice the ways that I go about my subculture in a way that is sustainable. So I'm also holding myself accountable to the eco parts of the Term. So, yeah, it's just a little bit of hiking to that identity.
0: Uh, Thank you so much for that. I think it's so powerful as well, the way you've encompassed terms that really feel so rooted in your identity and that you really took the time to find what those terms were Um, and it just feels so encompassed in who you are it's really beautiful to hear thank you so much (laughs) and I really resonate as well with what you're saying around the term sustainability and what it's maybe come to mean now as opposed to where the roots of it really should be for sure Mm -hmm. absolutely Well I would love to go on to now to chat a bit about uh, your relationship with the environment which you've described sometimes as a complicated one um, and how at times you felt like you were doing environmentalism backwards and I'd love to hear a little bit more about this and perhaps how that relationship might have shifted.
1: Yes absolutely I remember when I had made the post about mentioning like sometimes I I very much started in the early paragraph like I very much feel like I did environmentalism backwards. And the reason for that was because growing up, I had always had an interest within the earth science, within like sustainability, within environmentalism. But the schools that I had gone to were low income, weren't well funded. And so I never really had gotten the chance to explore that besides the very few. Uh, like, discrepancies through, like, my public education time and very, like, small moments. And I always wanted to dig deeper into that. And I knew that experience wasn't really happening outside of, like, low-income communities. I know there were students from perhaps a different district who were going on field trips that were about camping, going to national forests, or going to the zoo every, like, six months. And I, uh, and so that was kind of just the beginning of my understanding that you know as a kid things weren't fair amongst the um, education we were all receiving different levels or different types or what, what could be a better word like um, different types of quality of education and I remember very early um in my childhood I used to watch a lot of documentaries of mostly wildlife, animals, plants, with my dad on PBS, because, you know, PBS is free. <laughs> and so I remember watching all of those things growing up and always thinking that I was experiencing nature through this, these documentaries. And I know for a lot of people, they experience nature with, while actually physically being in that environment. And so in some ways, I probably experienced nature and formed my connection to nature through picture books, through like virtual screens and things of that nature. And I know that's a completely different experience than, you know, being there in person. Um, I think as I've gotten older, I definitely have been able to, you know, ease up and not feel so pressured to fit into this environmentalist. You know, cookie cutter box because I just have never fit it in the first place, and that's also okay. I've always grown up different, or an outcast, or what have you, and so it was very. When I came to the conclusion that oh, I quote unquote, like did environmentalists backwards, I was like, I've always been this way, and I'll always be this way, and that's cool. That's fine. That's um, part of who I am. I also felt like I done this environmentalist thing backwards was because you know, I grew up in a very concrete jungle. So what I mean by that is I grew up in the inner city where there isn't much vegetation. And I also grew up in an area where, there's a like a, an area of low income neighborhoods, but there's also such a vast difference if you walk like four blocks down and this is a wealthy neighborhood and you can visibly see the difference between our neighborhoods and that's also something that I realized growing up you know I noticed there was more palm trees um, more vegetation on that side more plants more flowers I remember um, on like hot summer days you know their streets were very shady but my streets were very bare you know the sun hit the concrete so harshly and you know as you might know when you know sun hits the concrete you know that creates more heat in the environment and with the lack of vegetation you know it was extremely hot so i also had remembered that and also remembered you know growing up uh we recycled but that wasn't necessarily you know oh to be eco friendly or you know to help out the planet well we still did that when we recycled uh one of the key things we why we did that was to get money back. You know, if you recycled a certain amount of pounds or whatever it may have been, you know, you get back like this little like receipt that you can cash in in the market and there you go, like you had money. So that was the reason I began to recycle. And I know a lot of privileged environmentalists or non-BIPOC environmentalists would do that like after an epiphany, after understanding about climate change, after having all these, you know, you know, climate related concerns. And that wasn't really mine. I grew up because we were financially concerned about making rent or making or having enough food on the table. So, yeah, it was just those few examples. I definitely felt like I was coming from a completely different plays I was coming left field with environmentalism but as I've gotten older I've learned that I really honor the ways that I did learn about environmentalism because well one no one can ever take that from me and two I'd um I'd, I'd probably choose many of the things over again you know I learned sustainability and environmentalism through my mother first and through my subcultures first and did it didn't come through uh eco-based org or the classroom and i think that's very true for a lot of people who are in a similar boat as myself someone who may be low income or who may be indigenous or what have you but yeah i I hope i've answered the question
0: yeah definitely what you shared was so so valuable in so many ways and I think especially when you mentioned the idea of like not fitting into like a cookie cutter mold of what is seen Mm -hmm. as environmentalism, like the narrative of what is seen as that environmentalist framework needs to be deconstructed because it's a damaging one to start with. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I think it's incredible to, to hear your experiences with coming into this space and practicing values of sustainability in a way that isn't rooted in this sort of upper middle class approach to coming into sustainability and and then claiming ownership over discovering that when it's something that is is innately Mm -hmm. in what you what you do um I hope that makes sense yes
1: no that absolutely makes sense and I, I think that's also very true to everything that I
0: said so the next thing I wanted to chat to you a little bit about, and it kind of came up in a way when you were discussing to do with education and this need for spaces to be more inclusive um, in many ways, and the environmental movement as well as society more generally is not inclusive or not diverse and there's many perspectives including indigenous knowledges that are so often overlooked Um, and this is you know despite indigenous communities having such a crucial role in the protection of the earth and supporting nature to actually thrive so yeah i'd really appreciate hearing your insights on this and how you'd envision an inclusive environmental movement
1: yeah of course i think well, like I, I'm trying to think, where should I begin? I think definitely, um, in the past year and a half that I've been observing, you know, online through the pandemic, the virtual community of like, you know, the environmental movement or whatever we would like to call it, let's just say environmental movement, I have noticed a lot of changes and a lot of a lot more discussion and discourse around connecting critical race theory or race and gender studies with the environmental movement. And I think that's something that Black, Indigenous uh, people of color have been advocating for that for years. And I think uh, with a lot of the occurrences that have transpired through the pandemic and you know everyone is now living their lives online in some ways. Um, I think some of these discussions were finally able to have because you know something like Zoom, where many people from throughout the world can join, made it a little easier to facilitate or have these conversations in vast numbers um, and with more diversity. So in terms of inclusivity, I think uplifting and amplifying the concerns, the missions, and the voices of BIPOC and other marginalized People should always be at the forefront uh, within the environmental movement. I think for a while they've tried to erase us or ignore us or dismiss us, and we are no longer having that anymore. You know, our concerns and our voices must be heard. Um, many of us in within these communities are going to be, and are facing actively right now, um, are facing the brunt of climate change firsthand. For some individuals, they're learning these things through articles, through uh, word of mouth, through no, like not from a firsthand experience. And for some of us, you know, as I had mentioned earlier, something uh, like the, the lack of vegetation in my neighborhood that creates an urban heat island within my neighborhood. And that's something that I experienced firsthand and with climate change, you know, unfortunately worsening heat in my neighborhood, has been exasperated you know so things of that nature I think it's finally time for people who are living and going through these first-hand experience to share their story and to have their story heard and also for individuals in positions of power or with resources to make space uh, for people who may not have that. Um, so, I think part of being inclusive is also learning when to step down and also listen. Um, I think it's, it's always okay not to be the center of attention or the center or the focal point of some things, um, especially when in the past we've continuously seen certain problems within the community be co opted or be amplified by people who are not living. Uh, this experience firsthand. So I think one, making space for people, two, listening to BIPOC individuals. Um, I think another thing that we can do to make the environmental movement more inclusive is to to do a lot of self-education as well. Not all education needs to be done or has to be taught to us by a third party. And we shouldn't expect labor or expect free education from BIPOC individuals or other individuals of marginalized communities to give us the know-hows or to give us the recipes to be good allies. I think a lot of it needs to be, you know, uh, responsibility and like taking on that responsibility as an individual and self-education. And I think, um, yeah, I had mentioned earlier, we shouldn't expect uh, free labor from BIPOC individuals. And I think a part of that is, you know, um, paying up when you can, you know, paying activists, uh, whether that's environmentalists or social justice advocates, what have you, paying them in the, in whenever form that you can. um you know, monetarily, or providing resources, or what have you, I think that's always really important, and makes the space feel like, oh, like, not only do they value what I'm saying, um, because they're here listening to me, but they also value me in different assets. And that literally sustain me as an individual under these, you know, systems. And I would say, fourth thing, to make the environmental movement more inclusive, also in regards to indigeneity, is always be willing to listen to Indigenous people, uplift their concerns. I think sometimes we think of we're in a certain community that we can only focus on things um, in a way that is a single issue. But no, showing up for Indigenous people in every aspect and not in just in terms of the times that Indigenous people are struggling, but also showing up for us in our time of joy, you know, we also exist outside of such a, you know, grim light, right? So yeah, just, yeah, also remembering to include BIPOC individuals in our time of joy for not only to speak on things that harm us or things that we're struggling with, but also talk about our creations our artwork things that we're doing in our moments of celebration because we also exist in these spaces as well we also experience joy and I think um you know non-BIPOC people often forget that and may sometimes um hone in on only one side of our life um without a balance so yeah I hope I've answered that
0: (laughs) yeah definitely thank you so much and I love what you're saying about the the holism of a person, you know, we are our joys, we are our struggles, we are more than one side, you know, everyone has so many facets to them and it's important that all of those are celebrated and uplifted and shared, I think is really important. And yeah, and definitely as well, what you were saying about learning and learning needs to be an active process No, like it's, it's something that has to be very, internal and reflective as well and yeah I really appreciate all that you shared thank you so much of course I also wanted to add that I really love the way that you are prioritising and practising unlearning, especially of damaging language and supporting people in doing that. There's so much damaging language that needs to be deconstructed and decolonized in many ways. And it's really important that we understand the hugely detrimental impacts that language can have. I'm just interested to ask, when did this start becoming um, something that you were more aware of and wanted to analyse a bit more deeply?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I've had this reflection as I've um, gotten older or in the past few years. I've kind of learned that, you know, we all learn everything from somewhere somehow. And sometimes what we learn may not be the best thing. And so when I've met, I've been met with things that I've learned and that things that I've had to question and interrogate, I've learned that there's this process to, you know. In an attempt to correct that, you know, I think of it as we learn these things, we learn, um, we're informed about something better. So we're asked to go through a process of unlearning what we previously learned. And after we've done that unlearning, we're able to relearn with new information and with a new perspective that we didn't understand correctly, or we didn't know that was wrong, or but we, you know, had mishaps within to learn it in the way that is, you know, the right way or, you know, depending on the situation or example. So I think as I've gotten older, I've learned that there is a bit of a process to this. And I didn't know that in the beginning, you know, when I was met with a misunderstanding or something that I had learned incorrectly especially when talking about language, I was very confused on how to move forward or how do I make things right? And I learned that that is the first thing, you know, I know that I learned something, whether good or bad, it is now my responsibility to unlearn that and to relearn that. And that's just truly like like the basic foundation of that. After that, it is also my duty, again, depending on the situation or example, to actively, be a participant to when I do hear damaging language to just redirect people or to call them in or to let them know, hey, I don't know if you're aware of this, but X, Y, and Z, you know? So also, you know, not being someone who is an enabler to uh, situations or things of like, things like that, learning to speak up, which of course I understand is really hard for many people But it's also very important because that's how we um, move um, towards healing our communities. This is also part of maintaining the well-being of our communities, of ourselves, of our circles. And something that I've learned is, you know, um, unlearning damaging language is also a form of like taking account personal accountability and responsibility to do better and be better. And also, you know. For me personally, I if I see you know something or something that I can share with other people before letting them commit a mistake, I can catch them before they do that, and so then that um, that process of learning is much faster and much smoother. And you know, I hope that they have uh, even better insights than me. You know, that they can teach me what I didn't know before, so or what I can learn, you know, in the future. So yeah, I think I really have discovered that learning happens so differently and that unlearning is an actual thing. And um, it's actually quite amazing, you know, the processes that we go through. And so I do try to uh, mention that throughout my page, um, because, you know, we don't always get to get it right the first time. And as painful as that is, you know, I've had my moments where I'm like, damn, like, Now that I know this, it seems so obvious, but I didn't know that then, and I genuinely didn't. So I know that, you know, part of that is also, you know, letting go. And what I do now matters more because I'm an active participant in being a better person and uh, bettering my language. So I just really hope to, you know, keep that momentum going and really when it comes to like our environmental movement, you know, there's a lot of damaging language within food justice, environmental justice, um, things that honestly was used, logos, things, statements that was used back in the eighties that don't fly or have never been good. That I'm kind of just like, you know what? We can also, you know, let go of old language and recreate new languages, recreate new statements and that are more appealing, that are, are insightful, mindful, and appeasing to the people that want to be heard, right? So yeah, I think that's a little bit about that.
0: <laughs> no, that was an incredible insight. Thank you so much for sharing. I also really love as well um, in your response to the question just then when you chatted about like calling in and a very constructive way of moving forward with deconstructing mm-hmm. damaging language. I think that that model of like constructive and compassionate calling people in mm-hmm. is a is a really difficult but valuable thing to do for sure yeah, um, yeah. oh wow thank you
1: <laughs> nice.
0: so something else that you share quite a lot about on your platform is around eco grief and eco anxiety and I think that you share really beautiful advice on how to support people with coping with this in a way that actually feels more connected to nature and a sense of purpose and I haven't really come across that approach to it many times before um so yeah I really love that so I was interested to ask you how did you find your ways of coping and what advice would you give for others for managing eco grief and eco anxiety yeah
1: so as I mentioned earlier in the podcast you know I didn't really grow up you know always being able to be like oh I can go to, for example, a park or, you know, nature, nature-esque environments. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, but environments that, you know, are full of, you know, wildlife or plant life. So I feel like for myself, when I ever I have been confronted confronted with eco grief or eco anxiety, I've had to work with the very little that I've have available to myself. And one of those things is, you know, so when I did go to school, or when we were on campus, (laughs) I became involved with my school's garden. And that was something that I've never really had an experience, you know, growing up, like there was no school garden, literally my entire like public school time up to the senior year, right, Uh, 12th grade. And so when I did go to college and there was a school garden, I was super amazed and super happy about that because I finally felt like, oh, like for many people, college or your campus becomes a second home. And I found that within the college that I was attending and to find a garden that, you know, the students can enjoy freely, you know, without being constantly uh, reprimanded or like hovered over, you know, there was a little bit of more freedom having that. So I kind of, um, that was really important for me as I was dealing with eco-grief and uh, eco-anxiety. So I learned that plants um, were really good at easing that for me, working with the soil and for people who may not have access to these spaces. You know, when I came back during this pandemic, of course, you know, we couldn't go out um, do the many things that we used to do in our daily life. um, I began to um, buy plants uh, for myself. So, you know, like pothos plants or snake plants or a little cactus. And so I began to, you know, I became a plant parent and I found that that was uh, equally as fulfilling for me, and also a way for me to ease my own worries um, without everything. I often look at my plants and I think about like, wow, like in this little pot, big or small, I carry the earth within me. And it's true because for me, you know, I still live in the same area that I grew up in and I don't, and of course with this pandemic, we can't go to parks or we can't go to these places. And so, when I have my plants with me, I don't know, I just feel so much joy and things begin to ease up a little bit. And I feel like things aren't as hard as they are anymore. And so, I definitely encourage people to, you know, get involved with gardening or get involved with being a plant parent. I know that there's often fears about, like, oh, I don't buy plants because I'm going to kill them. And I think that's so funny and true and valid because that was my thought process at first. You know, I was fearful about getting plants because I didn't want them to die. But something that I learned as a plant parent is that death is a part of that process. And that's okay. Because in those times when perhaps a plant dies, you learn something from that experience. You're like, Whoa, I overwatered it, overwatered it, or I didn't water it enough, or I gave too much sunlight and or maybe I didn't give it enough sunlight and I think in those moments again we can do do it over again and try again and I think that's the beauty of just taking care of plants that you know quote-unquote there is no you know getting it wrong you know it's all uh, every every little plant that you get is an experience is uh, a learning experience right so I try to remind myself and try to encourage others To also, you know, adopt a plant or buy a plant or what have you. Something that I've also learned and something that I actually like picked up more throughout the pandemic is to do art, you know. Whether that's watercoloring or working with acrylic paint, getting uh, my mind thoughts out on paper is really helpful and also helps ease, you know, eco-anxiety, eco grief. You know, sometimes I can paint or draw something that i would like to see in nature so i'll draw like a certain bird or like a plant that i haven't seen in a while so i'll draw that out or i'll draw you know just random things that will get me focused and also instill hope in me because i think when we are dealing with eco anxiety and eco grief uh you know our hope kind of you know dims a little bit it's, The light isn't so bright and it makes sense because that is what anxiety is. You know, that is what grief is. So I do little things, um, little self-care activities that, you know, elicit that light in me, elicit that hope in me. Once again, because, you know, as all things, you know, things aren't linear, giving isn't linear. You know, we'll have our high highs and then we'll have our low lows and I become to, you know, recognize those things in my life and in different assets or aspects of my life. And then something that I also have become more involved with is photography and photographing nature. And honestly, just photographing um, my friends and my family. I don't know why that has been so helpful for me because I think of, even though I know, you know, when someone thinks of the environment, they don't necessarily think of the neighborhood that I grew up with, but I do because that is my literal environment. That is my physical environment. And so photographing, you know, my neighborhood, the people who grew up in my neighborhood, the people who grew up in surrounding, you know, you know areas, I feel like that elicits so much hope for me because I'm like, we are still out here despite of all these barriers, all of these, you know, difficult or um, you know systems that were placed in and we're still thriving and I don't know I just love capturing um, my neighborhood and seeing the plants like you know literally flowers grow on concrete where I live and that's an experience that you know people from not from my neighborhood won't have people in more affluent rich communities will never have and I for love that I do have that experience. And so I don't know, things like that when I see like I see my people, you know, thriving in my community, I see plants thriving in my community. I see everything thriving in our communities when, you know, our communities were set up so with little resources, with little to with little funding for us as you know bipoc individuals as a bipoc community or a low income community to halt our growing but we're still doing it anyway so things like that honestly like give me hope and even just talking about it you know makes me feel so warm inside but yeah i think um things that help me i want to share with others because i think sometimes you know i didn't always see it this way you know growing up i didn't you know i can now you know I objectively be like oh no I can call out like the injustice in my neighborhood the lack of plants the lack of vegetation in my neighborhood that is I'm sure like it is no not I'm sure it's an absolute form of environmental racism while I can objectively do that on the same boat I can also appreciate the the parts that I love about my neighborhood because that's my experience and that's my that's literally my physical environment that's my hood that's community and so i i don't know i just those three things have been really helpful for me throughout the pandemic and i hope to carry you know like past this um situation that we're living in but yeah those are some things that um have helped me and continue to help me and i hope that you know other people will incorporate that
0: in their lives as well incredible yeah i'm so sure that that will be really really supportive for so many people and i, I love when you are speaking about even how plants have the ability to grow through concrete and it just shows so much resilience within nature and yeah you know, it's like harnessing that with the resilience within communities um yeah. and yeah i just think you articulated that incredibly beautifully and thank you for sharing Yes, thank you. <laughs> and the next thing that I really wanted to learn a little bit more about um, were your intentions that you sent, uh, you set in January, and yeah, I'm really interested to hear how these intentions have been going for you. Um, if you would like to share a bit about that, I'm intrigued to hear.
1: Yes. So one of my intentions that I made in the beginning of the year was authenticity, and what I mean by that was I found myself in many moments um, in times of equal grief, eco anxiety, but also just imposter syndrome where I began to doubt myself, uh, my knowledge, my ability. Um, and honestly, like, you know, I'm still very young and I have learned that I don't have to have everything figured out to the T, but when you're in that moment, it doesn't feel so easy, right? Um, It feels like, you know, you have to have everything aligned and everything, like everything back to back. You need to have this complete plan that you cannot trail off of. So when I mentioned authenticity being one of my goals, I will always come onto my page being my most authentic self. But I also found that I was shying away from um, opportunities or recognition From maybe like a magazine or maybe a different Instagram page or a different, uh, maybe an organization where they wanted to shout me out or talk with me or what have you. And I found myself not like struggling to be open about that because I was dealing with some doubt within myself and I had to, you know, handle that. And, you know, thankfully, uh, I got over that hurdle. And I know that if that, you know, were to ever come up in the future, again, for me, I know that I can handle it in a much better way. Because of course, you know, life is a roller coaster, right? (laughs) So a part of being authentic is letting myself opening up myself more to people, um, not shying away from opportunities, and letting it be known that I am that baddie, have always been that baddie, will always be that baddie. And I don't have to shy away from my authentic self. Even when I may not be used to certain things, you know, I don't know, something like I had mentioned, you know, recognition. It's okay. And I can work through that. And, you know, I can be recognized and show up as my authentic self. It doesn't have to look one way or the other. You know, I get to choose how I, co- I show up as myself. So I think I've definitely gotten better at that for one I think this podcast episode is definitely a step towards that I think the way that I write online and make my posts people read it one way but now that I am you know verbalizing a lot of my thoughts and reflections I think people can also understand like they get another version of me where I am also authentic and I don't know I just piecing myself together slowly um, has been really fun and not as hard as i had anticipated as well the second thing was personal wellness i found myself throughout the pandemic there was moments where i had you know i had downtime or some moments weren't as fun throughout the year for me and i've learned that my wellness is intertwined with the with the hard work that i do on my page so part of that is of course like if i'm not doing well, or maybe I need like a break, or maybe I need to step back for whatever reason in my life offline. I know that that's directly intertwined with my life per se, like online, you know, so to speak. So, prioritizing my personal well-being first and foremost at all times while you're around will, of course, benefit the page that I run. So, something that i have done in the past is try to you know run on very low fuel but try to get let's say a post out or try to complete a certain thing and i've learned that like my wellness comes before a work or comes before you know doing uh doing other things right taking care of myself is uh, really important so i wanted to make that known on my page and also just remind myself that my well-being is first and foremost, um, so I can take care of everything else diligently and the way that I want to. Um, so for the third thing was community building. Um, I wanted to be more present with the people who follow the page, um, the people who I refer to as misemias, my seeds, and just find, just find ways to support myself, support other community members, and support the missions of other orgs if we, you know, come across um, like an, a connection that we both, you know, are aligned to or what have you. So um, I definitely think I've done that. I've been so fortunate to um, have been part of a panel earlier this year, and that was along with two other amazing um, and uh, climate change activists. I was also you know able to host um, a workshop for indigenous youth, uh, people of my uh, of my particular community, and that was super fulfilling and honestly, just really amazing. That was such a beautiful experience. And those little moments that I have like that that wouldn't have happened if it weren't through my page, I am just like, wow, like all of this, you know, I didn't just stumble on this. I wouldn't have been able to stumble on like these little opportunities, not even little, um, these beautiful opportunities um, had it not been for this page. And so, yeah, I think um, I've been able to build more with community um, in those ways. And honestly, it's been a lot of fun and I hope to, You know continue to organize and to work on grassroots projects and just offer my page if anyone needs to my page has slowly grown throughout the months and throughout the pandemic so i think i'm reaching a place where i want to start inviting people to my page and uplifting their you know their missions or their voices or what have you so i'm working towards that and yeah that'll happen sometime in the future and fourth, um, I think we we've, t- we've talked about it earlier was, you know, for the page that I run, I commit myself to always unlearning and learning and relearning as many times over as I need to, because I am, you know, human and I anticipate that I will make mistakes or may not know something as well as I thought I knew in the future or what have you. So just remembering that I also have a responsibility to my community, to myself, to my circles, and the people who follow me as they are the ones who support me and who uplift me. So along with that, I also wanted to expand my palette, so to speak, for things that I want to learn about, you know? So some of the things that I want to learn about or want to talk more about on my page, is ecofeminism, you know, slow fashion, herbalism, eco history here in the United States, but also learning about environmental injustices that are not, you know, in the like global north, right? Like uplifting and learning more on how we can support countries of the global south um, because they are facing like the brunt of the climate change firstly and you know expanding what I want to teach and also learn for myself and also yeah just reminding myself that like through my page I'm not only learning on my own but I'm also learning collectively with everyone else yeah
0: yeah collective learning is such a beautiful place to be and it sounds as though these intentions have guided you in such a beautiful direction and served you super well through the year so far Um, And I definitely recommend anyone who isn't following Gigi's account at the moment. um, I'll put all of the links in the show notes and be sure to follow along um, because it sounds like there's some more incredible resources coming as well. Supporting such an enriching and beautiful community, I think, is, is so, so valuable. So. Yeah, I just have one final question for you, uh, which I always ask at the end of the podcast, which is, how do you find your little bit of lagum? So lagum is a Swedish concept that roughly translates to not too little and not too much. So I'd love to hear what that could mean for you. Yeah,
1: I think my my little bit of uh, lagum could be honestly. Tuning in with myself is that balance. As I mentioned earlier, my personal wellness is intact to the work or the organizing that I do online or in real life. So the way that I find my balance in my life is to remind myself that I can always give myself rest, offer myself rest. Um, without feeling guilty. I can do self-care. I can um, listen to myself and listen to my needs and attend my needs because I know those acts of kindness that I do to myself, I do for myself, will go a long way in the things that I want uh, for my future. Even with Gente del Maíz or outside of Gente del Maíz, And it's sometimes very difficult to remember and remind ourselves of that. So I think my little bit of Lagom in the way that I find balance is taking care of myself so that I can take care of others. And yeah, I think that's my little bit of Lagom, taking care of myself.
0: I love that so much. That's so, so <laughs> lovely. Um, and thank you so, so much for your time and for all of the beautiful words of wisdom that you shared today. I'm incredibly grateful. Um, yeah, you're such a beautiful human. And yeah, thank <laughs> you so much.
1: Wow, thank you so much. I've had a lot of fun um, talking throughout this podcast. And anyone who's tuning in from Hidder shout out to you. I care about you all, and I love y'all so much. Thank you
0: all for keeping up with me. I deeply appreciate that. Amazing. Well, I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much. Yes, of course. Thank you, Gigi. I really hope that this conversation has left you feeling uplifted and inspired, as well as providing a lot of food for thought to reflect upon. I really advise that you give Gigi's platform a follow, and you can find that at Ginter de Maiz on Instagram, and I will leave the link in the show notes. It really is such a wonderful, supportive community. If you have any reflections on this episode, questions, or thoughts that you'd like to share, feel free to drop me an email to a little bit of at gmail.com or just drop me a message on Instagram at a little bit of Thank you so much for listening, and I will speak to you again soon. Bye.